This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Ask the MD video. Tune in as a movement disorder specialist at the Michael J. Fox Foundation answers your questions about Parkinson's research and care. Learn more about living well with Parkinson's disease. Free resources like this podcast are always available at michaeljfox.org. Hi. I'm Dr. Rachel Dolan, a movement disorder specialist and senior vice president of medical communications at the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research. Welcome to Ask the MD in conversation, where I talk with community members about important topics in Parkinson's. Today, we'll be talking about sleep. Good sleep is an important part of keeping our bodies and our brains healthy, but it can be hard to come by. Many of us have trouble falling asleep, or staying asleep. Some people even act out their dreams. They yell, kick, or punch while sleeping. This is called REM sleep behavior disorder, or RBD. For some people, RBD can be part of Parkinson's. It can be one of the earliest signs of disease, happening years or decades before diagnosis. But it can also happen years or decades into life with Parkinson's too. Not everyone with RBD goes on to develop Parkinson's, but scientists are learning more about this connection to develop better treatments and ultimately prevent Parkinson's. For more on these topics, we're talking with Terry Golden, who's been living with RBD since 2012, and his wife, Holly. They're joining us from Wilmette, Illinois. Welcome, Terry and Holly. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Rachel. We appreciate the invitation to be part of this program. So let me get started by asking, I know you're both empty nesters, you're both retired. How do you keep yourselves busy? Both of us are very, to start with, we're very, very athletic. Both of us are into yoga. We both play tennis. We play golf. We downhill and water ski. We just, and bicycle a lot. We just try to stay active. Yep. And you have to be well rested for all of that activity, right? Absolutely. So important to talk about sleep. And what we're going to focus today on is acting out dreams. And Terry, I know you act out your dreams. So I'd like to start by asking you to tell us what that feels like and what that looks like for you. Well, it it started, I used to play a lot of basketball and I finally wore out my hips and had to get them replaced and but I still dream about playing basketball you know and it's the excitement of it and you know one of my incidents that sort of opened up my eyes that I had a problem was I was um, dreaming about playing basketball and stealing a pass and I jumped in front of somebody and caught the ball in my dream it turned out that I tackled a glass lamp on my nightstand and uh, it was quite disturbing, a little scary for my wife. <laughs> Very. Uh, and uh, that's kind of how it all began. Very scary, as you said. And you have other types of dreams as well that you act out. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, the dreams seem to have a common, they seem to fall into categories. Another dream is being chased by wild animals. I don't know, you know, where an animal's approaching me and I'm, I start kicking the animal to keep them off of me. And I'm actually doing that while I sleep. And my wife, who's next to me, can nudge me and pull me out of it. 
she's being kicked as well while this is happening. Sometimes, yes. And right. uh, that will wake me up. But even if he's not, you know, if I'm not directly impacted, I can feel him in bed kind of running or pushing or kicking. Right. Uh, and that will often wake me up. Right. I might even be another type of dream that I've had commonly is uh, uh, being in espionage where I'm uh, I'm running away from somebody and trying to escape. And I might throw myself out of bed when I'm diving for something in my dreams to get out of the way of somebody shooting me. Yeah, really frightening for you, Terry, to be having these sorts of dreams. But Holly, from your perspective, <laughs> what is this like as somebody who shares a bed, as a spouse of someone, obviously very, very concerning and worrisome. Very worrisome. Um, initially, really worrisome. Uh, once we you know, identified the condition and he started getting treatment for it, you know, less so. And as you lived with it for all these years, it, it's not as jarring as it was earlier on when, when it was so unexpected. And I'll, I'll add that uh, now that he's uh, on what I consider a good medication program for this, those bigger incidents are very infrequent. And we want to get into the diagnosis and the treatment, of course, but just to stick with you for a second, tell us a little more about what it's like to be sharing a bed with somebody, <laughs> to be being picked, and at first, not, not certain why. Yeah, it's challenging for sure. And, you know, it's disturbing to my sleep. You know, I wake up. Fortunately, I'm a pretty good sleeper, so I can usually get back to sleep without too much trouble. Um, and now it's kind of a, okay, wake up, and then he'll, well, he'll wake up, he'll stop, and... And, and one of the worries is, is I can turn either way in the bed. I can dive out of the bed and that saves her from getting hurt, but I might hurt myself, <laughs> but I could be facing the other way. And I could, I, I have been known to hit yeah. her, and, uh, you know, I, I think about the way I'm facing as well, that if something happens and I'm facing Terry, well, then I might get hit in the face, but if right. I'm not facing when, Terry, it's not as when, bad. <laughs> when I face Holly, I try to tuck my arms under my head. So they're not loose. So I have to consciously pull them out of that position. You know, hopefully she catches me. A lot to think about in your, as you go to bed and in your positioning and taking all these safety concerns into account for both of you. Yeah. And, and Holly, you mentioned too, that you were concerned at some point that like many people, you might have to sleep apart for both of your safety and, and how this might impact your relationship or your marriage. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, had we not been successful with treatment, that might have been a necessary solution because I might not have been able to get enough sleep or adequate sleep. Uh, so I'm happy. Or enough that. security. Or enough security, right. Mm -hmm. But I worried if I move to a different bed and now he's experiencing these things on his own, is he more likely to get hurt if I'm not there to wake him up when he's on this path of uh, moving around too much. Yeah, it's a valid concern. It is. And, you know, as I'm talking to you about it, I'm thinking, wow, this sounds terrible. But but it was more scary. And now the fact that it's less frequent uh, has made it manageable, I guess I would say. Let's talk a little bit about how you figured out what this was and, and what doctor you got to and how you led down a path toward the right treatment. And I'll be perfectly honest. <laughs> Holly's the more studious person of the two of us. So when I had this thing, she immediately went online and started looking it up and exploring um, other, you know, exploring what other people say. 
which can be a good thing or a bad thing. The internet does yeah. have a lot of misinformation, so you want to be cautious about that. Absolutely. And when it happened once, I thought, oh, this is just a weird thing that happened. And I didn't really think anything of it. But when it happened a second time, and there was probably maybe a few months between those two incidences, I thought, okay, this is now a pattern. And I wonder if this happens to other people too. So uh, interestingly, uh, and I know the internet could have a lot of misinformation, but as soon as I put in a search box, acting out dreams, information about RBD came right up. Uh, so it, it reassured me that he is not the only one experiencing this. I'm not the only one experiencing this. Um, and eventually took us to a physician at Northwestern uh, who had experience with RBD and did diagnose it. And it's so important that anybody who's experiencing something like this, whether it's acting out dreams or any kind of sleep change, gets to a doctor who specializes in this area, a sleep doctor, right. who can take you through what, what's happening, what this might be, and, and formally diagnose it. And tell us a little bit more about that experience for you, Terry. What was the diagnosis process like? Well, we looked up this doctor who specializes at a, at a very prominent local hospital. And at my first appointment, I started describing him what was going on and and he it just it was classic as far as he was concerned. I mean, everything I've described was an indicator that I had this condition. For me, it was kind of a good feeling that somebody was able to so quickly diagnose it. Now, when they told me that it was also a potential indicator for getting Parkinson's in the future or, or increase my odds of it. That was also interesting, but I felt more reassured that somebody had identified what was going on with me and that they were able to control some of the problematic uh, symptoms that came out of it. And as you mentioned, this can be one of the earliest signs of Parkinson's in some people. So I'm sure very worrisome and concerning to learn about that risk. And I want to talk a lot about that more in just a second, but to stay with the diagnosis of RBD for a moment, tell us then what, once you, once you said this sounds like RBD, did you have to go through a sleep study? Did you ultimately go on medications? Did you have to make other adjustments to your bedroom? Um, one of the first things we did is we did a sleep study. And I, I believe the doctor was looking for symptoms of RBD, which I'm not sure you would see in one night. It was also concerned about my ability to sleep soundly and to determine if I was if I needed any additional measures to help me sleep properly. And they, and they did determine that I did not have uh, uh, what sleep apnea. For our listeners, a, a sleep study, an overnight sleep study, which isn't the most comfortable thing in the world where you go and either you can do it at home or, or go to a, a lab type of facility and get hooked up to all kinds of um, recording machines and devices to see what it's like when you're dreaming. And this can help us confirm REM sleep behavior disorder. But Terry, also, as you're pointing out, look for other sleep conditions that might be cause for acting out right. dreams or might otherwise interrupt your sleep. And the doctor, I'm sure, could see small movements during my REM sleep phase that would confirm that where normal people don't have this, this issue, your body is automatic, basically paralyzed uh, to movement. Whereas a person with, uh, with RBD, your body moves with your dreams. That's such an important point. 
And you're right. Normally when we sleep, our brains prevent our muscles from moving so that we can't throw our lamp across the room or, or get out of bed and, and run across the room. But in people with RBD, those brain signals don't work properly. And so the muscles can move and we can act out our dreams. One thing that the doctor said, I think, when we had the follow-up visit is even though I might not notice this every night or Terry wouldn't notice it every night, it might just sleep through some of it. It's probably happening much more frequently on a very small scale. Uh, and it's only the bigger incidences that get to the point where it wakes one of us up. So important to treat, and there are good treatments for it, but Terry, you're on some of these medications. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm taking um, a pretty large dose of melatonin, which is pretty benign. It's not very, you know, but it does subdue my movements. I'm taking um, a, a, a drug every, every evening called clonazepam. Yes, so melatonin, a, a hormonal um, supplement that can be available over the counter, and then also clonazepam, this prescription medications. And these medications have worked pretty well for you. They've worked. They've worked very well. I've had. I've not really. I started on a little lower dose of melatonin. They raised that one up. But as far as the clonazepam, they kept it where it was. They've been very effective and reducing yeah. the number of, uh, of of large incidents or more noticeable inc incidents. The doctor kind of stepped up that dose of melatonin. You know, try this for a week or two, then report back. Let's let's increase it a little more uh, to where the point where we are now. And I think it's 15 milligrams. Of yes, melatonin. it is. Just gradually getting to that right dose for you. Right. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I feel like it hasn't eliminated the problem, but it has greatly reduced it. So I, I can live with that. And you made some adjustments to your sleeping space and your bedroom as well. Is that right? Well, yes, in a, in a way, we, we actually ended up uh, purchasing uh, nightstands that had rounded corners. So if I did fall out of bed and hit my nightstand, I wouldn't That's be hitting okay. a sharp edge. Um, and we went to a platform bed, so it's lower to the ground. It's not one of those super duper right. low ones because we thought we're getting old. We're not going to be able to get out of that bed so easily. <laughs> but, For a little while, I had one of these things that we put on children's bunk beds, you know, to keep you from falling out of bed. But I think I've graduated back to not require my incidence of falling out of bed right. is so low um, that I that it felt that it was uh, better that, off. Yeah. Having that made it hard to get out of bed when you need to go use the restroom at night or something. <laughs> so there's a trade off by using that. So we gradually stopped using that, um, but it's still in the closet if we, yeah. <laughs> if we need to go back to it. This balancing act, like you mentioned, of, of having comfortable sleep, being able to sleep in the same bed, but also, again, paying right. attention to your safety and the quality of your sleep. So I want to get back to this point, Terry, that you mentioned about learning that RBD, REM sleep behavior disorder, can be a risk for Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. Obviously, very concerning, very worrisome to learn that, especially right after you were diagnosed with RBD. So tell us a little more about that. Well, one of the things I, when I learned that I had this condition of RBD and that it had a higher incidence of being a, a precursor to getting Parkinson's, it isn't always the case. And one of the, and in one sense, it worried me, but at the, in the other sense, it made me feel more uh, comfortable that somebody knows what I have. And then if it does lead to people, when I go to my, to my doctor, what these a large amount of the time is spent seeing, checking my movements, checking my reactions, 
to see if there are any signs of Parkinson's. And so far, since I've had this condition, my doctor's never told me that I, I am, I'm, he's seeing a, a, a condition that could indicate that I have the onset of Parkinson's. I also feel that if I do eventually develop Parkinson's, that I'm immediately closer to the experts. And I don't have to go searching for the right people to deal with it. And I could be on the hopefully cutting edge of something that, uh, that could help treat Parkinson's or help lead towards solving it. And what you're talking about is you got to a Parkinson's doctor so that you could get regular evaluations and see, as you mentioned, if, if signs or symptoms of Parkinson's were developing over time, which you haven't seen any evidence of yet after about a decade of living with this. Is that right? That's right. Another thing, and this is only maybe Terry Golden's personal theory, <laughs> is that I do a lot of, I eat well, I eat properly, I sleep properly. I do a lot of physical activity, a lot of exercise. Maybe that has something to do with why Parkinson's is not displaying itself in me or, you know. Or yet. Anyway. Yeah, or yet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and that, that's not just your personal opinion. Research is showing that exercise is one of the best things that we can do for our bodies and for our brains. And there is some suggestion that it could potentially delay the onset of Parkinson's if it is going to happen. And in people who have Parkinson's already, of course, it's one of the best things that you can do for managing symptoms and also potentially slowing the changes that happen over time. Mm -hmm. So Terry, one of the other things that you also did, so you, you got to the right doctors, you maintained your vigorous exercise schedule, but you also joined research and you joined a study called the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative or PPMI. Right. And this is a study that's looking at people who have REM sleep behavior disorder, whether they have Parkinson's or not, to see exactly how Parkinson's comes on and changes over time so that we can develop better treatments for the disease. But also ultimately, hopefully, prevent it from happening. So tell me more about why you chose to participate in research, why PPMI? Well, initially, when I was diagnosed with, with uh, RBD, I was working full-time under, like everybody else, I felt I had a lot of pressure and a lot of obligations, et cetera. So my doctor asked me if I wanted to continue to be part of research. My answer at that time was I, unfortunately, and too busy. Since I retired when I was uh, 60, 65 years old, I felt I had the extra time to devote, and it's not that much of, a, of an obligation. I mean, I go maybe once or twice a year for a, a battery of, of both mental and physical tests and things like that. It was something I felt was a good contribution, uh, just uh, to study me, to share my, the information, that they're finding out about my condition with other doctors. And I, I the, P, the PPMI I was referred to um, by my doctor. They wanted, they asked me if I could join that. And then when I was ready, I felt I had the time. And Holly, how do you feel about Terry participating in research? Well, I think it's great that he's doing it, um, both for uh, the benefit of the research in terms of learning more about Parkinson's, which uh, you know, has a you you have all the statistics on what percentage of people develop Parkinson's in general and all of that. It's it's something that is prevalent, and so the more we learn about it, the more we can 
learn to prevent it and uh, or treat it better. And you know, to a question that you asked a while ago about the you know how do I feel about the risk of you know this is hanging out there that Terry may develop Parkinson's. I'd also say that a lot of people might develop Parkinson's who don't have this knowledge that they're at risk for it, and therefore they're might have symptoms that develop that they're not paying attention to. And by the time they go get treatment for it, they're well into it. Uh, in this case, we're, we're aware that there's a risk and he sees, you know, very well qualified doctors. He's part of this research study. I feel like we'll know very early on if that's where he's headed and when it begins. And that can be nothing but a benefit to, to us. Right. And I, I feel other one of the other advantages of being in the research program is being exposed to even more high-tech measures of detecting Analysis. Parkinson's and yeah. such as uh, I had an opportunity to get an MRI of my brain, a DAT scan. Um, they did a lumbar puncture to check my spinal fluid. These are all things that really when you get a, a yearly checkup to look at, at, at RBD, um, they're relatively expensive measures that they would not justify for a once a year uh, checkup. But being in the program, I'm exposed to some of these other higher technologies. It gives you that closer look and that closer contact, as you mentioned, with researchers and, and doctors who are in this area. Exactly. Are there other ways that you manage this worry about living with RBD? Holly, you in particular? Holly, probably more than I, because I don't worry so much. I'm definitely the worrier <laughs> of the two of us. Um, I think it's like many things in life that, you know, we, we all live with risks of varying kinds, um, you know, and this is his risk. There's not a family history of that. And there's really, you know, he doesn't have a history of cancer in his family or diabetes or, you know, other things that many other people worry about. So this is just the thing we have to deal with. You know, I try not to think about it all the time and, uh, you know, have it become such a factor in our day to day lives that it doesn't let us enjoy what we have. But it does factor into things like, you know, we love to travel and let's do it now while we can. Who knows if, 10 years from now, we're still going to be in that position. Uh, but that's true of many conditions, not just Parkinson's. You both have such great outlooks uh, about this. Terry, what would you tell other people who are living with REM sleep behavior disorder? Um, I would say that your biggest contribution would be to join a thing like PPMNI or to participate. Um, I look forward to my once or twice a year visits there. I mean, it's, I know it's a little, you know, there's, it's a pretty uh, intensive day of getting MRIs and data scans and lumbar punctures, things like that. But in the end, it's only, it's, it's about six hours of activity doing very interesting things. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not that difficult to, to be helpful. And what they could learn from me, hopefully, will will help solve the mystery. What would you say to anybody who's on the fence about joining research? Um, if you have the time, you know, again, being retired, I would say, you know, you're pretty, my time is pretty loose. I would say join the program. Um, it's, it's just a, a very worthwhile contribution that is not taking, that is not so involved that you have to give up a ton of time. And Holly, what would you tell other loved ones or spouses of people who are living with RBD? I would say make sure you're getting uh, 
good treatment from somebody who has expertise in this area because the treatment has been, I'd say, life-changing. I mean, it was life-changing to find out that he had this and equally life-changing to get some treatment that really has helped. And I, I think probably most people with the condition can be helped with, with treatment. And, um, and I think, too, the, the participation in a research study is proactive. You know, you have a choice when you have something like this in your life, you could just kind of sit back and wait for it to happen, or you can be proactive and uh, work toward its uh, better outcome. And, you know, why, why not? Uh, again, the time is a big factor. You know, if you're working and if you don't live near a major medical center where you can go uh, do this, it would be much more difficult. But we live in Chicago and he's retired. And so there we go. And the initial step into PPMI is only an online survey. So yep. some people will then go on to be invited to come into clinic, into a medical center like you do, Terry, but not everyone. So, so the time commitment may be even less to begin with in joining PPMI. Absolutely. On that note, Terry, I would ask you, how does it feel to be part of something like PPMI, which may have the potential to really change how Parkinson's is seen and how it's cared for and, and potentially even make the disease something of the past? Well, I, I only hope that what they learn from me can, can help solve the puzzle. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced I'm going to have Parkinson's, but if I do, I feel like I'm in very good hands, you know. And you're doing everything you can. Yeah. I'm just proud to be part of uh, the research. And I don't feel like it's, I ha it's not like I have to commit, you know, weeks and months and stuff like that. It's only a couple of times a year and, and responding to some surveys and things like that. And researchers are so grateful for your contributions because they couldn't do it without you and without your, your contributions and, and your time. So thank you so much for participating in research and also Terry and Holly for sharing your experiences with us today. Thank you. Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. If you act out your dreams, whether you have Parkinson's or not, you can help research. The Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative or PPMI is learning more about the connection between REM sleep behavior disorder and Parkinson's. These insights could lead to better treatments and cures. For more on REM sleep behavior disorder and Parkinson's, download our free guide at michaeljfox.org slash rbdguide. Thanks for listening. Looking for a specific topic not covered in today's episode? All Ask the MD blogs and videos are available for free at michaeljfox.org. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.